Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. What's well, good, Alaska? This is Scott Levesque, and you're listening to the Daily Dose of the Must Read Alaska podcast. Thank you for joining with me today. We are so glad that you are here, and we got plenty to talk about. There is never a dull moment in politics here in Alaska, or even in our nation for that matter. But before we do that, as always, you know my plea, and you know what, guys? There's a little bit of time to celebrate. We hit 100 reviews already. I want to thank every one of our listeners, supporters, and readers for your part in this. It has been really exciting. We hit it before the end of the year. That was sort of our goal, and so we've hit that. But like I told you before, we're not going to stop there. So we're looking to get to 150 now. We got 101 reviews, and it's been wonderful. So if you have just a second, go ahead and give us a five-star review. And if you want to go that extra mile, because I know there's a lot of you extra mile people out there, why don't you go ahead and give us a written review as well? We would really appreciate it. We've seen an influx of written reviews. You guys have been overwhelmingly positive, and we want to thank you for that. It has been great to read every one of those. So once again, if you got a second, give us a five-star review. And if you want that extra mile, go ahead and take it and give us a written review as well. Well, here we go. We have so much to talk about. We've got some national news to talk about. We've got plenty of Alaska news. And I'm probably not going to hit everything that you want me to. But before we kind of go down the road, let's hit some quick hits here. Some things that have come through the uh, the newswire. And let's just talk about this. So Suzanne wrote about election commission staff sets new campaign contribution limits of 1500 now that 500 limit thrown out by courts. Now, this is going to be very, very interesting. Let me read you from the article written by Suzanne. The staff of the Alaska Public Offices Commission, APOC, as it's known, is set the campaign contribution limit at 1500 from an individual to a candidate. Now that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has thrown out the previous $500 limit, which was in statute, the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court said the $500 limit is unreasonable and it is severely disadvantaged non-incumbents and also was not uh, elastic to adapt to inflation. So a simple. this is the bottom line. The idea is, is that those who are challenging incumbents are not able to garner enough money to challenge them from a monetary perspective. They're not going to be able to get enough ads, so forth and so on. The problem with that rationale, and and I don't really care to be honest with you, uh, the problem with that rationale is assuming that the incumbent is not going to receive as many contributions uh, from individuals as somebody who's challenging. I'm not 100% sure why that was sort of the idea, but here we go. Maybe it gives the the challenger, an opportunity to get more individual donations that could help out a bit more. I'm open to that. Suzanne also writes, Also, another limit was created by staff. The non-political party group to candidate and non-political party to non-political party limit is 3000 per year. Man, uh, I will be interested to see how this works out. As many of you know, you can look up each candidate's contributions. You can see where they're coming from. 
And the real deal is this. Most of the money going to the candidates are from individuals, for sure. And there are some companies that donate and, and so forth. But a lot of the extra money is, like, funneled through many of the PACs. And many candidates have PACs doing the bidding, the marketing, the mailers, all that on their behalf, as we've seen here recently with Bronson and Jamie Allard. These are like dark horse. Sometimes it's hard to track down packs. And in doing so, what you see is that the, the money that's funneling through them is thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, as opposed to what the candidate's going to get. So, uh, you know, maybe this will help challengers uh, when they're trying to go up against incumbents. I'm not 100% sure that's the case. But regardless, I think this is really interesting. And we'll provide some up-and-comers. I know when we ran uh, a campaign for the Assembly on the east side, many of the $500 contributions were just – that's difficult, man. $500 is, is difficult to run a campaign on, especially when you have a challenger. But to be able to up that to 1500 per calendar year and then carry that over, particularly in the municipality assembly elections, which happened in April. So candidates really, um, you know, kind of sign on in early fall and can build that contribution list up. And then as soon as the new year hits, hit those same people up again. That's a big deal. It really is a big deal. So that was something a little bit interesting coming across the board. Another interesting development here in Anchorage is the fact that Dina Bishop, the ASD superintendent, will retire at the end of the year. Now, what ended up happening on this announcement was a windstorm of left-leaning bloggers trying to somehow correlate Dina Bishop's resignation with a lieutenant governor run with um, Governor Dunleavy. Now, that has been dispelled. Governor Dunleavy said there's no uh, truth to those rumors, but that certainly did create quite a little stir early on when that announcement came out. The bottom line is this. The the reason given was to spend more time with the family. And and you know what? That very well could be. But I got to tell you, through 2020 into 2021, I'm sure it was not uh, easy to be the ASD superintendent with everything going on. And as a matter of fact, some of the moves that were made were highly criticized. There was a lot of back and forth. Some people have felt like they were misled. Others felt like there was not enough restrictions. There was a, obviously Corona virus is a polarizing issue. And this is a great example of maybe, maybe it was too much. Like the stress, the politics, whatnot, maybe was too much. I don't really know. I don't know the entire answer, but I do know this. The, answer, the reason given was to spend more time with the family. Now, if you don't remember this, Dina Bishop was also the superintendent in the Matsu Valley School District as well. And the association that came from a possible, which was all made up from left-leaning blogs, run as lieutenant governor with current governor, Dunleavy in re-election came from the fact that Dunleavy was on the board when uh, Dina Bishop was the superintendent. So that small link in a small state created this wildfire of, well, Dina Bishop must be... No, that doesn't make sense because if you see the resignation, she's staying throughout this school year and will be done effective June 30th of 2022. Just a very little interesting tidbit here as we're seeing many... Many developments, um, you know, I don't know if you want to call this a collateral damage of coronavirus, if you want to, I don't know what you would call it. Very, very interesting.
Very interesting. A lot of changes upcoming. Another interesting perspective here is the fact that student enrollment in ASD is down fairly significantly. It really is. It's down really, really. The significance of it is pretty astonishing. Now, we have an article on this from Suzanne Downing, mustreadalaska.com, entitled Anchorage Student Enrollment, 42,826. Now, according to that count, that was an October count, it was just an increase of about just under 1,000 students from last year. Now, if you remember last year, many, many students were pulled from ASD based on the fact they went to uh, Zoom meetings. Uh, they pulled away from in-class, in-person meetings. And so the school district felt a tremendous hit from parents who were not happy, not only with the education, but with the fact that it really impacted their work life. Parents had to stay home, obviously. That may have affected a lot of the socioeconomical issues that were going on and exasperated them. And then clearly you have a two-parent household or even a one-parent household that they need to work. What do you do? You're trapped. You're stuck. And and the school district just went right to uh, virtual classrooms. And so parents pulled their kids out. Not all of them, but quite a few of them. I know for a fact that I've got a couple of... uh, Friends that work in the homeschool area, and there was a massive influx of homeschooling students who came on board to a lot of these homeschooling uh, consortiums, I guess for lack of a better term, to the point where a lot of these homeschool consortiums doubled. I mean, we're talking 4,000 to 8,000 students in homeschooling. I mean, it was amazing. But what we're seeing is that parents are reluctant to put their kids back in ASD. Now, for the 2018-19 school year, there's about 46,700-ish students that were enrolled. And this is according to Alaska Department of Education. Last year's official number was 41,902. So you're looking at roughly just shy of 5,000 students that pulled out of ASD. Now, the number I read to you was the count in this October, so just last month, which equated out to about 42,826 students. Now, that's just an increase, a rough increase of about 924 students from last year. But they are 4,000 students shy since the pandemic. That is huge. So what's the ramification? Well, it's budgetarily. That's what happens. And I don't know the formula they use, so I don't have anything off the top of my head. But you guarantee that the budget for these school districts, particularly ASD, is it's going to be highly affected by the fact that there are almost 4,000 students less. And if you know anything, as we talked about yesterday with Quinn, money follows the address, not the student. And if you were to place that money with the student, ASD would be in some serious trouble. Serious trouble. We had a conversation with Quinn Townsend, who is the essentially the policy manager over at Alaska Policy Forum, and had a great discussion yesterday about the fact that uh, the the APF is kind of suggesting that school choice be a, a really big component of education here in Alaska. And many of those reasons have to do with the fact that Alaska's academic outlook, particularly in math and English, is very poor. It's usually on the back fourth end of all the states in America. So usually residing anywhere from about 
42 to 50-ish, which is awful. And if you looked at some of the things that we talked about on the podcast yesterday, including the graphs at the alaskapolicyforum.org website, you're going to see that uh, there is tremendous concern. I mean, real, real concern about exactly how much our students are getting educated. The Peaks performance of 2021 does a clear job of showing that. I mean, it really does. And we talked about it yesterday. So if you didn't listen to the podcast yesterday, I would highly recommend you going back, downloading that, and listening to that because uh, Quinn gave some great insight on exactly what's going on right now in Alaska's uh, education system and, and the fact that we are trending down. Now, I'm not blaming teachers for that. I'm just trying to figure out what is going on. And one of the one of the ideas is, is why don't we give parents, families – the the power to choose where their kids go to school. That's one of the suggestions there. So school choice was a component of what we talked about. But very interestingly enough, you are seeing a significant, significant decrease, in my opinion, uh, with 4,000 students who have not yet re-enrolled back in ASD, uh, which was the number of about 46,700-ish students prior to the pandemic. So you're sitting 4,000 students less still in 2021 going into 2022. Just a major thing. I think it's something that's worth talking about, particularly here in Anchorage. Um, you know, I'm not 100% sure what the Fairbanks or the Kenai Peninsula Borough numbers are, but Anchorage, there's 4,000 students. is a lot of students in the school district. Lastly, just to touch on is President Joe Biden has decided that we're going to push out this vaccine mandate for businesses that have over 100 workers. Now, last we checked in with uh, Mr. Biden, he was on the campaign trail. We'll talk a little bit about that. He was in Virginia trying to pull for uh, the Democratic, I guess I would have to say front runner. I mean, by all accounts, Terry uh, was pretty much the front runner. He had Biden there. He had President Obama there. He, I mean, former President Obama. It still feels like same administration, though. Uh, Kamala Harris was there. He had all the big guns out for him. But Joe decided that he's going to now push back the mandate for those businesses that have over 100 employees to January 4th. Okay, let me read a little bit here from the article Suzanne wrote under the title Biden's Jab Rule. Businesses with over 100 workers have until January 4th to enact mandate. Reading from the article, the Biden administration today announced that businesses with more than 100 employees must have their workforce fully vaccinated for COVID-19 no later than January 4th. Those who do not comply must enact weekly testing of their vaccinated, unvaccinated workers, excuse me, and unvaccinated workers will be forced to wear masks while vaccine persons will not, according to the regulations released by OSHA. Amazing. Here we go. Here we go, folks. Let's read on. Also, by December 5th, any unvaccinated person working for one of the companies affected by the mandate will be required by federal regulations to wear a mask while on the job. More than 80 million Americans are thought to be affected by the regulation, which also offers uh, orders companies to give paid time off to employees who want to get vaccinated, as well as time, uh, pay time off for any side effects. Companies who do not comply with 
This may be fined up to 14000 per violation. Any further or defiant noncompliance could draw even higher fines, OSHA said. Well, folks, here we go. Here we go. Looks like there's, he's putting some teeth to this. Now, the deal would probably be this. Let's, let's just be honest. The administration is being sued right and left. Okay? And so there's litigation going on. There's, there's discussions. I mean, they're going through suits. There, there are probably thousands of lawsuits against the Biden administration right now. And I'm sure their legal team is excited about all this. But the bottom line is, is I'm curious as to what's going to happen moving forward. I'm very curious. I'm wondering what is going to happen with, in particular, the Supreme Court. Is this an overreach of executive powers into the private sector? If so, what is the Supreme Court going to do? Can the President of the United States mandate that private businesses and nonprofits force their employees to get vaccinated or enact segregata- uh, segregation rules, right? So vaccinated, doesn't have to wear a mask, don't, can essentially just roam around freely Versus the unvaccinated, which are going to be required to wear masks, going to have to be required to be tested weekly, and so forth. All these stipulations just to work. Here's another question. Does that apply to those who are virtual workers? That's a great question. Those who work at home, who do not go to an office. I've got many friends that are virtual remote workers that are asking those questions. I don't go to work. I'm not around people. I'm in my home. Why do I need to get vaccinated? Do I need to get vaccinated? What's the penalty for me? How do they test me weekly when I'm home? Do I have to go into somewhere? What's the deal? This is, this is such a haphazard plan, and I haven't really seen a great layout and rollout of this at all. Now, the idea early on was this. This whole plan, this mandate, was supposed to be enacted this year. It's been pushed back to January 4th. The question is why? Why? And now all of a sudden there's a drop-dead date of January 4th. Well, there's a drop-dead date of November, I believe, in the original plan. So what's going on there? Also, what happens to those who decide to go against this mandate from the, from the president? I mean, we have states that are saying we're not doing this. I'm curious as to what's going to happen there. OSHA has already said, and, and this is the thing, guys. Listen, I, I want you to be very clear. These in, rules that are being enacted are, are through bureaucrats. You don't elect people to OSHA. Okay? That's the, that's the hard part, is that this is bureau, bureaucracy at its finest. It's crazy. We have no input as a country on who's, on the, who's working for OSHA. And that's a loophole that is being exploited right now to push this vaccine mandate. It's disgusting. It really is disgusting. And again, I always go back to this. I have not heard a logical argument when it comes to vaccinated versus unvaccinated. As a matter of fact, we are starting to see breakthrough cases on the rise. Remember, Israel, Iceland, a lot of these countries that forced and or mandated vaccines for the majority of their population are now seeing breakthrough cases galore. Many of the people 
that are entering into the hospitals and utilizing resources are breakthrough cases, not unvaccinated people. And keep in mind, eventually the number runs out. Eventually the number runs out. And we're starting to see that here in Alaska. As we looked at, we've been kind of watching as the statewide COVID-19 cases by weeks continue. And let me just remind you of some of these numbers. From September 21st to September 27th, we had about 8,733 cases. September 28th to October 4th, we had 6,225 cases. That dropped nearly over 2,000, almost 2,500. October 5th through October 11th was 5,672 cases. We had a slight uptick from October 12th to October 18th, where we had 5,891 cases. It then dropped again October 19th through October 25th, which got down to 5,035 cases. And now October 26th through November 1st, 4,188 cases. On Monday, they saw 494 cases. But over the longevity of this graph, you were seeing the decreasing of new COVID cases. Keeping in mind, Alaska is still one of the top states to continuously test for COVID. Still. But as predicted, there is significant decreasing. I mean, from October 19th through the 25th, there was 535 cases. Now, from October 26th to November 1st, 4,188. That's a decrease of 17%. And it will continue to drop. Now, I guarantee you, in the acreage region, region, excuse me, the assembly is going to try to take credit for this for the mass mandate. I can tell you right now, I've been out and about in Anchorage. There are not many people, let me rephrase that. There are a lot of people that are not wearing masks still. Restaurants, stores, so forth. What this is, is the natural progression of a variant coming through, taking its toll, and going down. That's not to take away that every life lost is a tragedy. But right now, we are seeing, once again, the fact that the COVID uh, cycle has taken its, its course, especially with this variant. But what ends up happening is we're making policy based on in the moment as opposed to looking at the trends. If you look at Florida, Florida has the, one of the lowest cases, case rates out there, and they've enacted no mandate, none at all. Which begs the question, what are we missing here? Because here's the deal. Many will say this, okay? Here's what's about to happen. And again, we'll have variants up and down. We'll have uh, cases that are higher than the day before, cases that were lower than the day before. Uh, I love the idea that the ADN is, is saying that over the weekends, for example, over the past weekend, they said we had over 1,500 cases. The problem is, is I, I believe you and I, and most people would consider the weekend Saturday and Sunday. Unfortunately for the ADN, they keep Saturday, Sunday, and Monday on there. And I saw that because if you look at what they were talking about in terms of 1,500 plus cases, it included Monday. And if you've looked at the data through the weekend 
since the pandemic, Friday is, or sorry, Saturday is normally high because people have more availability to test. Sunday's generally lower and Monday's generally the lowest. And then it kind of cycles through. But we've got to be very honest and transparent. And as I've said before, I, the, the raw numbers, the 36,000 foot numbers are great. Yes. I think from that, you'll start to see. You're, you are seeing this um, curve. And now it's on the downtrend. But what's really important, I think what really breaks, uh, breaks down significantly, is the fact that we need to see below just that 36,000 foot view. And that's where I think a lot of people, particularly our listeners and, and people who are trying to understand what's going on with the pandemic or what's just going on with you know, COVID-19, they want to see those numbers. And if I'm them, I totally understand that because here's the other thing. I want to see exactly how many people are vaccinated in the hospital, how many people unvaccinated in the hospital, and how many people are just in the hospital because it's winter and there's an accident or there's snow machine or whatever the deal is. Because what we get is we get these generalities. You know, it's 75%, 79% of total hospital capacity is um, of all hospitals are, are occupied. So all the beds in Alaska, 79% of them are, are full or taken up. But what you don't read in the fine print sometimes, or it's not, a, the narrative is all those are really COVID patients and specifically unvaccinated. Because the narrative has always been, you know, every patient that walks through is unvaccinated, so get vaccinated. It's the narrative out there. And I'm starting to think that based on the numbers, the sheer numbers, that just can't possibly be the case. As a matter of fact, anecdotally, I've seen many people who I know that I've been vaccinated get sick with COVID recently. So I know there are breakthrough cases out there, more so than maybe are even being reported. So once again, it goes back to, I get it. You want people to be vaccinated. I have no problem with the COVID-19 shot. If you want to get it, get it. But when the logic of those who don't get it breaks down to this, you're a danger to everybody, I still haven't heard a logical explanation for this. I still haven't heard it. We could talk about viral load. We could talk about contractability. We could talk about uh, the ability to spread the virus. We could talk about all that. And yet I haven't heard a logical reason. I hear a lot of emotional reasons on both sides. But logically, everything seems to break down. Because when we start talking the logic, what ends up happening is that people get emotional about it. And so that breaks down. And all you get is people mad and arguing with each other. And here's where we are. But Again, I don't want to make the whole podcast about COVID. Unfortunately, that seems to be ruling our lives still. But let's, let's shift our focus, Alaska. I, I want to shift our focus because I think this is very interesting. Listen, this past week, obviously in Virginia, there was a massive turn of events. And those who were in the conservative Republican side of the camp felt a euphoria they haven't felt in a while. 
I would almost link it to when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. Because many people were saying, we won, we did this, we did that. That we, that kind of collectivism was being talked about when it came to Virginia. And that's the fact that the new governor-elect, Glenn Youngkin, a conservative Republican, beat out Terry McAuliffe. And he did so in a fashion that just surprised everybody. The CNN, MSNBC feel that night had a very similar feel to when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. A lot of stunned, astounded, speechless, right into name-calling of those who voted for Yunkin. And I don't want to get into the specifics of that. I mean, you could go and look at all all the data on that, and it was pretty exceptional. You saw that Yunkin took... 10 or plus more points from specific areas that were not even that wasn't even accounted for in the exit poll. I mean it was it was astounding to watch from a, a campaign strategy level. And I don't want to get into that because that's getting into the weeds and I don't bore you. But I want to get into the bigger themes of what this looks like. There was heavy hitters in Virginia, which is purple at best, trends blue, that were campaigning on, on the incumbent's behalf. Terry McAuliffe was the incumbent to the governorship. Yet Yunkin came in and completely outperformed what anybody had expected. And there's a couple of themes I want to go through. Number one is this. Republicans and conservatives need to campaign, and, and I've heard this and I agree with it, campaign on cultural issues too. One of the things that really spurred Yunkin's campaign was the fact that Democrats keep hurting themselves. They're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on things that parents don't want. School boards, for example. Yunkin targeted and said, this is what I'm going to do when I become governor. I'm going to make X, Y. And he hit a cultural issue that has been pervasive throughout the country. Republicans and conservatives cannot be afraid to talk about social issues, cultural issues that are important to their constituents. That is one thing that you got to, that is a theme we must understand. Republicans and conservatives cannot shy away from, for lack of a better term, what's termed as the culture wars. Because they're here. And they're important things. You could talk about tax rates all you want, but at the end of the day, parents care about what their kids are learning, where their kids are getting their ideas from. Parents care about the fact that they're being trained at school with what they're being trained at home. Those are big issues. Those are social, cultural issues. And right now, they're called culture wars because there is such a fragmentation in this country about those cultural issues. And the reason why Yunkin won is because he didn't shy away from them. The other reason he won is because Democrats keep kicking themselves in their own butt. They just can't help themselves. They really can't. It's astonishing. What should be a shut up and just win on the fact that you have a pres- the presidency, you have the Senate, and you have the House. No, what ends up happening is you just keep doubling down. You're pushing the line further and further left. And right now you're seeing the recoil effect. Mark my words, 
if Republicans and conservatives in other states follow Youngkin's campaign strategy, you could see a massive flip in the Senate and the House in the midterm elections. I'm telling you. New Jersey election, way closer than it should have been between the Democratic and Republican candidates. Way closer. Absolutely. And you're starting to see this movement across the country, which is if Republicans, if conservatives who are running do not shy away from those culture war issues, those culture issues, and actually face them head on instead of trying to talk about tax rates. Listen, that stuff is when you get into office and you're working with the legislature. Governors don't pass laws. The point is, take note from Yunkin's playbook. You have now a Republican governor, you have a Republican lieutenant governor, and you have a Republican attorney general in the state of Virginia. A sweep. And that has trickled down. Listen, you think the Biden national campaign trickles down? Now in the midterm elections, it will trickle down. It is going to be a massive, massive swing the other way. And especially if Biden continues to double, triple, and quadruple down on these policies that are, frankly, the reason why he's at 38% approval and dipping further. My plea is this. Republicans, conservatives, look at the Yunkin playbook. Look at it and make sure you follow it. Or at least take aspects of it that were just applicable to where you are. Because it was, it was well played. And now Virginia is red. All right, guys, that's it for me. Rambled on today. There's a lot of topics to talk about. But again, we'll be back tomorrow. But until then, take care, Alaska.